This is the Scottish Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Kim McAllister. Hello. It's hard to talk about Scottish entrepreneurs without mentioning Sir Tom Hunter. The Ayrshire-born father of three sold his business, Sports Division, for £290 million in 1998. He set up the Hunter Foundation, which supports educational and entrepreneurial projects in Scotland and Africa, and the private investment vehicle West Coast Capital. He was Scotland's first billionaire and has given millions to charity through his venture philanthropy. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to talk to you. What have you been dealing with this morning? Oh, my goodness, this morning. Well, we've been looking at a publication we're doing with the David Humes Institute, which is looking at the European Union vote. Mm -hmm. So we're doing something similar that we did for the Scottish referendum giving experts to give their point of view. We're not looking to convince MD of our point of view because we don't have one. We're just trying to get better informed and um, we're going to make it available to every voter in Britain free of charge. Oh, excellent. Um, so that was it. And then I had a meeting with Jim Duffy of Entrepreneurial Spark to catch up with Jim. I don't see as much from these days. So he's, he's on a roll and doing his stuff. And um, now I'm speaking to you. <laughs> a busy morning then. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested in your report into Brexit because you, as you said, you did something similar for the referendum and it was well received. And, and I'm interested why it's kind of fallen to you to provide this impartial information. Why do you think that is? I'm not quite sure. Just like the Scottish referendum, I felt that I personally wasn't informed enough and I felt that I wasn't going to leave it to the politicians alone to inform me because obviously they had their own point of view that they wanted to convince you to vote with them and it's probably even more confusing with the European vote because even people in the same party have vastly different views so once again it started by saying right I, I would like to get myself a bit more informed about this and our friends at the David Hume Institute have um came up with a, a very good list of people who are going to give points of view, who are going to give facts, but hopefully without all the political spin and, and all, the, <laughs> all the nonsense that goes along with that. <laughs> well, it sounds like it's, um, it's going to be a great read when it does come out. Is it next month that it's going to be available? Yeah, it, yeah. it's be in um, April. We're just finalising it all just now, um, but it's, it's going to be sometime in April. Excellent. Now, it's a tough call between you and Jim McCall as to the more successful entrepreneur to come out of Scotland. And, and you're quite unusual in that you've stayed and you've not skedaddled to some tax haven somewhere. Not saying that Jim McCall has done that, but a lot of people who've made money do make these decisions. So why did you decide that Scotland was going to be your home and your headquarters? Yeah, I think, first of all, you know, I'm a real passionate Scot. And Scotland has been very good to me. You know, we... I've had the benefit of a Scottish education. My kids have had the benefit of a Scottish education. And I mean, I wouldn't want to call anywhere else home. So I think um, we, we are very lucky to be born in Scotland and therefore why would we want to go anywhere else? Yeah, you're, you're known as a passionate Scot and you're obviously comfortable with that. And I, I suppose it's a big part of who you are, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think what what I love about Scotland is, and, you know, we do travel a lot, so, but whenever you travel, people will say, oh, where are you from, Scotland? And 
you know, 99 times out of 100, it's, oh, Scotland, we love Scotland. So it's a very positive welcome that you get straight away. There's a big advantage in being Scottish, frankly. And people around the world seem to love the Scots. So, yeah, it's um, fantastic. Excellent. The story of your business beginning out of the back of a van is, is fairly well known, but but you also had a stall in the Barras. And I want to know, was the chat brilliant? <laughs> Yes, well, I mean, I, I, I suppose this is what they teach in Entrepreneurial Spark, is, is if, if something's not working, listen, um, pivot, change, and do something else. So I I started selling slippers in the barras, <laughs> um, but that didn't work. And in fact, the guy next to me was selling Hoover spares, and he went off to the pub at lunchtime, so I'm I manned his stall as well, and, and he certainly made more money than me. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder where he is now. <laughs> I wonder where he is now, yes, I'm, I'm not sure. But yeah, I mean, these, you know, doing stuff like that is, is what I call my real education. You know, education is a very broad church, and it's not just what happens in school or college or university, you know, actually getting out there and um, speaking to customers and than in places like the Barras, that's that's what I call my my real education. <laughs> and it does seem like from from the other entrepreneurs that I've spoken to, there's no real secret to success other than hard graft. Was that the case for you? Yeah, I mean, I I I have studied this for a long time now, trying to see if what's the secrets. Can we replicate them in Scotland? Can we get more successful entrepreneurs? And certainly, I haven't met anybody who's successful who is not an extremely hard worker, that's for sure. So it is definitely one of the prerequisites that you can actually put the errors in. But you've got to be putting errors in on the correct things as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't be a busy fool. That's it. (laughs) And it was your father who gave you your first loan. So what kind of influence was he throughout your career? Yeah, so my dad was um, hugely influential. He was he, he was a grocer up in Newcomnock, and I I was in the shop from a really early age, maybe even six or seven, and I really did learn at my father's apron because he was an old fashioned grocer who wore a white coat and an apron and all the rest of it, and again a real education of learning how to buy and sell and deal with the public and you know all this sort of stuff. So hugely influential all the way through. He did indeed give me my first loan, but more important than that, he was there to talk things through. He had huge, you know, business experience and running the shop. And yeah, right right through to he passed away. He was he he was in the office and um still giving me a hard time. <laughs> <laughs> You must miss him. Do you miss his influence in your life? Yeah, well, listen, my my dad and I had a, had a great relationship and we worked very closely together, as I say, right up until he passed away. He, he was still coming into the office. So, yeah, I think about him most days. Aww. And your business, as we've said, started at the most basic level, I suppose, and then it grew and grew. So what what were the main challenges you faced as it got bigger and more successful? Yeah, well, I think something that we talk about a lot is that you know if if you're going to build a business of of substance you need the help of others 
And again, I haven't met anybody who's successful and built a big business who's who, who's a one-man band. It just doesn't happen. You've got to be able to engage with others. You've got to attract the best talent. You've got to retain the best talent. And I would say that's the number one thing about you know building a business of substance is is, is how you attract and maintain your people. And that was it's it's the most rewarding part of the job, and it's the most difficult part of the job. And often it's the most frustrating part of the job. <laughs> but I'm afraid us human beings are, are complicated and <laughs> sometimes not rational. <laughs> <laughs> what, what kind of manager were you? And, and did you kind of surprise yourself with your, your leadership style? <laughs> it's very hard for, for you to answer how others see you. I think that's for others to say. But, you know, uh, the best, the best, piece of management advice ever got was was from a book called The One Minute Manager and it's a very easy read and you, you can probably read the whole book in 40 minutes All right. and it is absolutely fantastic and it, it basically says leave others thinking of their actions and not your own and we can all think of people who are the ballers and the shouters and the, <laughs> and the cursors and you know if you're at the receiving end of that, you don't go away thinking, oh, they've got a point. You go away thinking, what an idiot that person is. Whereas if, if someone's sincerely engaging you and saying, you know, normally you're, you're, you're so good, what's happened in this occasion? What can we do? You know, then you you do go away thinking, right, I want to change this. That that actually was my fault and I'm going to take correct corrective action. So I would I, I would like to think that is something which I practice, not only preach. Okay. And and you mentioned that book. Is there, is there other books that you've read or, or maybe other mentors that have advised you? Um, I, I, I love books and I, 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 I've usually got three or four on the go at any one time. So, I mean, there's just innumerable books, but um, the the ones that come to mind straight away are, are, are on management, the One Minute Manager. I was very um, taken by... Um, a gentleman called Professor Muhammad Yunus, mm-hmm. um, who really got me thinking about social business. And he has a couple of books out, one about how he started Grameen Bank and one how he kind of founded the whole social business movement. And those those two books are, are really terrific. And um, I go back and read them every year. So those are good ones to have on the shelf if you're a business person. Yeah, I would say. Excellent. So you were obviously in business selling sports goods and uh, you sold your business in, in 1998. Was that offer really unsolicited? Did it come out of nowhere? Yeah, yeah. We were we were thinking, you know, we were the biggest in the UK at the time and um, we were looking at what our next strategic moves were going to be. We, we looked at whether we would go for an IPO and we decided that that, we we didn't need to do that because we didn't need to raise the finance. You know, it was a very profitable and cash generative business. And the business that was second in the UK was a public company run by Dave Whelan. And I was actually at an entrepreneurial exchange conference when I got a phone call. <laughs> That's a nice phone call to get. Um, yeah, I, I didn't think so at the time. Because, you know, JJB and Sports Division were very big and aggressive rivals. So 
when Dave phoned saying, would I think of selling, I was saying, no, 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 I'll buy you. So it was a, mm. <laughs> it wasn't a great first call. <laughs> <laughs> so it must have really made you think. I mean, what was your process for that? Yeah, so at the time, you know, I mean, sports division was really the only thing I had ever done. It was, it'd been my baby for 14 years. It had taken over my life, you know. It was, um, we'd grown it from, well, yeah, from the back of a van, um, and just being myself to employing seven and a half thousand people and and I was loving, you know, running the business. Mm-hmm. Um but actually once once Dave called and I took a cold towel and and thought it through, I thought, well, you know, this this could be a rather exciting chapter. Reached the level of my own competence, you know, because it would be very unusual that someone who starts with a one man band has got the skills to run a seven and a half thousand people band mm-hmm. <laughs> and um when i took time to quietly reflect on that i thought no this is this is actually what i want to do mm-hmm. and then there must have been a period once you'd signed the contract where you thought wow what now yeah well i mean it was a difficult time as well because sure i got a big check um but i also knew that the headquarters in Ayrshire, where i'm sitting today would be closed and people would lose their jobs and these people you know were important to me and so it was a bittersweet experience that's for sure but I also knew that I wasn't going to run away and I, and I did see it as, as a, a big responsibility what we were doing and as I say I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in my office in, in the same place as I speak to you. <laughs> Excellent. So there was some continuity, but but you still went from being a business person looking for investment or trying to raise funds in, in the various forms and then to becoming an investor yourself. So how did your experience inform your decisions? Yeah, and my wife and myself made a few big decisions at that point. So the first decision that we made was that I still wanted to be to be in business. So it was still um, a challenge. It was still stimulating, but I didn't want to run any more businesses. We were going to find the entrepreneurs. We were going to back the management teams, etc. Mm-hmm. So that was a big change and a big decision. The second thing was that um, we weren't, you know, in, in terms of personal wealth, we we didn't need any more as a family. Therefore. We were in business, yes, to make money, but my share of that was going to go into our foundation. Mm -hmm. And the third big decision was that we were not going to leave our children with huge wealth. So so these were pretty pretty life-changing decisions we were making. And how did your children respond to that third decision? (laughs) Well, you know, they they were pretty young at, at, at that time. And so they travelled with us, you know, and they travelled to Africa with us and they saw that, you know, life wasn't all about, you know, fancy houses and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And um, we just generally talked to them about, you know, we weren't going to leave them penniless, but we basically brought them up to be independent thinkers and basically said to them, you go and find out what it is you want to do and we will support you. And I think... Warren Buffett got it just about right, saying he's leaving his kids enough that they do something and not too much that they do nothing. That's a tricky balance to strike, though. Yep, indeed, and we're still working on it. <laughs> what do they do? What what ca- careers have they chosen? So we've got a couple of 
musicians mm-hmm. and a marketeer. Excellent. So they're happy and they're fulfilled, which is most people's yeah. measure of success, I which suppose. Is, which is what you really want, you know. Absolutely. Um, and they've done it for themselves, mm-hmm. which, which is important. And I'm sorry to bring up the credit crunch, but it did sure. kind of bite you in the in the backside, so to speak. Yeah. So, um, I mean, how did that feel? What was that time in your yeah, life like? I mean, it was a very um, sobering time, I would say, you know. I, I was having the time of my life in the in the Hunter Foundation, and I've I've said it many times before, but I, I I took my eye off the ball in terms of the business, so we lost focus in our business. We had too much on, and we weren't prepared for the financial crisis. And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, these are my mistakes, and I've paid for them. I've learned from them, and. You know, West Coast Capital is in much better shape today because of it, frankly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was a sobering time and it cost us a fair amount. But I'd like to say that we've learned from these mistakes and we won't be making the same mistakes again. <laughs> <laughs> it's something people always say in business that you have to learn from your mistakes. But I suppose that that's a bitter pill to swallow, isn't it? The, the, the only regret I have is that... Um, some people benefited from the whole financial crisis. We didn't, mm. and um, because we weren't good enough, and we're going to make make sure that we benefit from the next financial crisis. Oh no! Don't say there's another one coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, there will be. I I can't tell you when it is, but um, oh, if only you had that crystal ball, eh? <laughs> yes. Now I believe you have a secret weapon, and her name is Marion. <laughs> She's been called a secret weapon. That's interesting. <laughs> what's What's her influence? She's obviously been key in your major decisions. What? How? How is her um, input into what you do? Yeah, I think when you're involved and passionate about your business, you know, you can sometimes lose and not see the the wood for the trees. And Marion's blessed with something called common sense. <laughs> um, I suppose again, been brought up in Ayrshire, and so you know. She can very quickly get to the number of things, but just she keeps my feet firmly in the ground. That's for sure. <laughs> you seem, from what we've been saying, you seem very pragmatic. Has that always been the case, or do you think that's business that's taught you that? I think it's, as, as I say, that that great word called common sense. It just seems sensible to me. Some people may call it pragmatic, but we like to get things done with a minimum fuss. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the way we've always been. And a number of entrepreneurs I've spoken to have prized their bullshit detector. Would you say that's one of your skills as well? Yeah, I think being Scottish, you get it at birth, um, <laughs> which is a great gift. And um, <laughs> because you certainly need it. And sometimes you need it very highly tuned. <laughs> um, but I think the Scots get it as a gift at birth. Yeah, one one of our gifts. <laughs> your focus right now is on is on scale ups with your your foundation and the work that you're doing with entrepreneurs, um, and that seems to be a bit of a buzzword right now. Can do scales just been launched by um, Highlands and Islands Enterprise. So, yeah. how does a company go from being a startup to being a scale up? Yeah, I mean there are great you know definitions for it, but I think the simplest one is is a company that's growing it growing their revenue more than twenty percent per annum and growing their employees about roughly the same and you know a couple of statistics um struck me about the whole things where 
a recent study showed that 100% of the new net jobs coming um, are going to come from companies that are under five years old. Mm. And so, I mean, that's quite astonishing. So, yeah. therefore, are we educating our young people to be going into that world of work? Are we educating them to work in scale-ups, to lead scale-ups, you know? And that brings me to the education agenda. Um, and it all kind of joins up in the joined-up thinking, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and another statistic that blew my mind was coming out of the World Economic Forum that said if you're in primary school today, 65% of the jobs you're going to do once you enter the workplace have, have not even been invented yet. And therefore, the challenge for us is, is to educate, um, to prepare our young people for that. And I don't think we're doing that at the present time. Mm. And we need, to, we need to catch up. We need to change some things. Yeah. So this kind of leads me on to the subject of your philanthropy, which really is staggering, and the amounts of money that you give away are just huge. But it's the philosophy behind it that that I find so interesting, this venture philanthropy, which really takes your business expertise to the next level. Do you find other entrepreneurs are quite inspired by this model? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that we don't preach about it. You know, we don't say to people, well, do as we do mm. you know i mean that's first of all entrepreneurs don't listen to that <laughs> we don't we don't like being preached at that's for sure but um if somebody can look at what we're doing and say right i can do that better then that's that would be brilliant you mm-hmm. know um but it just seems common sense to me starting out and that you know i was a bit daunted by the word philanthropy and what did it actually mean and but when it was put to me and I think it was my dad, in terms which I understood, which was business language, mm-hmm. you know, why don't you set out your philanthropy to, to achieve what you want to achieve, hire a chief exec, hire the best people you can, and then measure your success along the way. That just seemed common sense once again. Mm-hmm. So do you think if you'd maybe made your fortune or been in the position to be a philanthropist via more traditional means, you might not have been so receptive to it? Or... Do you disagree? Um, oh goodness, who knows? But you know, my my whole context was from business. Therefore, mm-hmm. um, why not bring that learning and try and improve on what had gone before in, in philanthropy? That was my kind of thinking. And what do you get from it? What's the best thing about it for you? Oh goodness, you know, it's you know when we sit down and and we've got something which is seemingly you know a, a stubborn problem, and we actually set out with great partners to change it and we're measuring it along the way and we actually see positive change. I mean, that's, I've have, I have said often that when something works in our philanthropy, it's it's a bigger buzz than any, any business deal I've ever done because it's, you know, it's transformational for a community, for, you know, a group of people. So, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's very fulfilling for you. Yeah. Yeah. So we have some questions from our readers. If you don't mind, I'll just um, okay. send them to you. So you and Cameron would like to know when was your lowest moment? Um, goodness, you know, through the financial crisis was pretty low because I knew it was our fault. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was my fault. I was leading that, and I was I didn't do a good job, a good good enough job. Mm. So that was um, that was pretty low. Yeah. Mm. And Gilles Baudet would like to know, if you were 20 today again with no money, what would you do? 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, it would definitely be something in tech, definitely something in e-commerce, something in those those spaces. Okay. And Sarah Keenan would like to know, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? Well, I suppose with hindsight, it was when we bought um, Olympus, um, which was a business 10 times our size, (laughs) and I borrowed the money from Bank of Scotland to do it, and I put my house on the line, and I put everything on the line, but I didn't see it. You know, great, great entrepreneurs, people think great entrepreneurs are great risk takers, but I would say great entrepreneurs are great risk managers mm-hmm. and even though to the outside world um, and perhaps even my wife that seemed like a crazy thing to do <laughs> I I kind of understood the risk and I understood the downsides mm-hmm. and I thought we could manage them mm-hmm. so something that may have seemed crazy to the outside world I I, I was very comfortable with it mm-hmm. And it paid off, so you had the last laugh. <laughs> um, and Louise Doherty's asked the question, which we may have already covered, but you can maybe think of another example. What was your biggest mistake? Early on in the business, when um, and it was early, so we were only selling shoes at the time, and that was going really well, and I decided to open, at the same time, an indoor go-kart track oh. <laughs> in Mary Hill. Okay. And um, that was stupid. <laughs> And um, again, you know, there, there weren't enough hours in the day before I opened that. So um, I was doing that as well. And that was a big mistake. Mm. Did it lose you some money? Well, yeah, but it, it, it lost me a bit of focus as well. Ah, right. OK. Well, those are the questions from the readers. And just one final question from me before we finish. What would you like your legacy to be? Um, I suppose a legacy would be, I'd, I'd, I'd like to say that we... we, we we were the catalyst for a positive change in Scotland. That's a pretty good legacy, I would say. I would, I would be very happy with that. But oh. I'm not, I, I'm not planning to croak it any time. No, soon, please so. don't. <laughs> please stick around. <laughs> There's still a lot of work to do. <laughs> well, it's been great chatting to you, Sir Tom. Thank you so much for your time. For more inspiring profiles of Scotland's top business people, go to scottishentrepreneur.com.